the second week we are in this wrapping up series of Daniel. And as we, as we do, I just want to uh, encourage you to open your Bibles. We're going we're gonna to actually do a little bit of flipping around, going back and forth, uh, looking at different passages in the Bible, but mainly staying here in Daniel chapter 8. Now, hopefully if you were with us last week, you would, uh, would, would remember that we're doing this because we would like to be able to say that we've surveyed the entire book of Daniel, that we've covered all of the book of Daniel from a, a surveying sort of standpoint. And, and why that's important to us is because we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful, is beneficial for our well-being. In other words, all of the, the Scriptures are meaningful and helpful in growing us up, in maturing us, in, in bringing us along as children of God. Children shaped after in the image of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we, we don't want to shy away from the harder passages. And, and these visions and dreams that we're going to kind of look at here in Daniel, they certainly feel like those harder passages. But, but buckle up and, and, and come along because there is benefit to us. It's beneficial for us. It's meaningful for us as we, as we look into the book of Daniel or as we look at these passages together. They will, they will shape us and mold us after God's own heart. And so uh, before I read the passage for us, I, I want to ask that the Holy Spirit would guide us and, and illuminate his word to us this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so very much that we can come before your word and not come before your word with such arrogance that, to say that we are masters of your word. We know exactly what your word says, but Lord, we can come as, as students as children looking to our Father for sustenance, for provision, for care. And so, Lord, we come before you with your word and ask you to, to illuminate your truth to us this morning. Open our hearts and minds to what you want to teach us through the visions you gave Daniel so many years ago. And so, Lord, may it all be for your glory that we open this time, this, this, your word together in this time. And may it be for your kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, again, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 8 and uh, follow along. I'm going to read the first, pretty much just the, the first half of the chapter. Uh, <clears throat> Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1 for us this morning. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision... And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the, the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from, from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at, it in, ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. 
And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great. The south toward the east, sorry, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper." Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. All right, so who's confused? Yeah, good. I should, I'm, hopefully I'm seeing lots of hands. I'm confused. And as we're going to hear later on, Daniel's confused, right? Last week, we explored this vision in, in Daniel 7 where there's these four great beasts that come up from, from the, the, the water, and, and they're brought before this, this courtroom where the Ancient of Days, God himself, sits on the throne, sits in judgment over these four beasts, finds them guilty. And not only does he find them guilty and punish them, but then he takes away their authority and their dominion and he gives it over to one like a son of man. And as students of the word, we may be reminded of this title and actually know in the New Testament, this is a title that Jesus likes to refer to himself as over 80 different times. That Jesus associates himself with this one like a son of Man, This is the, the very same Jesus who, before he returns to heaven, ascends back to heaven, he commissions his disciples, and he tells them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The, the grounding for the ministry that we as his church have been given is rooted in the fact that Jesus, as the Son of Man, has been given the, the authority and the dominion from the, the ancient of days, from God himself, as God has taken it away from the kingdom of man and given it to Jesus in the establishment of this new kingdom. So, from last week, we know what the future holds for the evil and wicked powers of this world. We, we know what is, what is ahead for earthly uh, leaders and, and earthly powers that, that rely only on themselves and don't look to God for their strength, for their wisdom, for their, for their in faith, right? The, the sure outcome of the history of this world is certain, and the kingdom of God is, is the hope we draw in the dream of Daniel chapter 7. But, but here in chapter 8, Daniel has another dream. And it follows after this first dream, and it's very similar, but it offers us a different hope-filled promise. It, it offers us a, a promise that's different from the one that says, hey, you are guaranteed to know what the future, what the outcome of this world is. The, the hope, the, the dream, I'm sorry, the, the promise that, that Daniel 8 offers us is, is a promise that there will be a sure and certain end to the darkness, to the suffering, to the pain that occurs in this world. 
it will have a definitive end. This will not be like a run-on sentence. This will be a, a, an exclamation point, a, a period. There will be a clear ending to the, the, the pain and the suffering and the persecution that happens in this world. This, uh, this week's vision is, is symbolic of, of what history and humanity will be like, even as, as God's end to this world comes to a conclusion, as, as God enters into this, this, this history, this world, and brings it to a screeching halt. We get this picture of what that end will look like. But Daniel's dream in chapter 8 goes a little bit further than it does in chapter 7. It gives us a little bit more definition, more clarity around what it might look like by giving us an example in history of one of these world powers that we might find ourselves up against. Daniel is, is given some, uh, some relevant examples of what this, what this evil persecuting power might look like. Now, in the first couple of verses of our passage, Daniel tells his readers that he has a second vision, right? And he says it's, it follows after the, the first. And, and this vision occurs during the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar of Babylon. Now, Belshazzar reigned from uh, around 545 B.C. to 539 B.C. And so that means that Daniel's vision comes to him right around 542 B.C. in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Now, if you are thinking, that name sounds familiar, I hope you're thinking that name sounds familiar, because we covered King Belshazzar back in the beginning of June in, in, in chapter 5 of Daniel. Now, this is a king who, he was so arrogant, so full of himself, so, so confident in his own power, that even when the Medes had surrounded his people in the city, when he was so confident in the, the, the walls that they had built, he's like, you know what, they're never going to break through. So you know what we should do? Rather than prepare a defense, let's throw a party. So King Belshazzar, he's that king that throws a big feast in the midst of, of, being, uh, of their attack drawing near. And while he's in this feast, he sees this disembodied hand writing some words on the wall. Uh, mene, mene, tekel, uh, and parson, right? And, and so he's like, what is going on? He's terrified, right? What's going on? So he calls Daniel, one of the captors, uh, that, or one of the, 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 the Israelites that they had captured when Babylon overtook them. And, and he says, Daniel, come and, and interpret this. And what Daniel says is, listen, king, your time is up. God has measured, he's weighed your, your iniquity, he's, he's weighed your evil, your wickedness, and, and it's done. You're, you're done. You will be killed this very night. And so we read in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30 and 31, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now this, this vision that Daniel has in chapter 8 occurs two to three years before this, this kind of experience that uh, King Belshazzar has. Two to three years before the end of the Babylonians, Daniel gets this vision, this dream, about these next, basically these next two world powers that will succeed the Babylonians, that will, that will carry on after the, the Babylonians fall from, from power, these earthly powers, right? The Medes, who will eventually be unified under the Persian king Cyrus, are this first world power that Daniel sees. They, they're that, the, the ram that we hear about in the, the, the vision, the dream. But the second kingdom, the second kingdom is likened to the, the Seleucid, uh, Seleucid sorry, portion of the Greek empire. 
So from, from this vision that Daniel has to, to its fulfillment, it's about two to three years. And this is going to be important for us to remember later on, okay? I know I'm, I'm, kind of, uh, I'm kind of sharing some information with us right now, but I want you to kind of keep it in the back of your mind that there's about a two to three year window between when Daniel has this vision in chapter eight to its kind of, uh, to the example unfolding before Daniel, before the people uh, of what God's talking about here. Now, Unlike chapter 7, this vision that Daniel has here uh, has a little bit more detail to it, right? It's filled with imagery like in Daniel 7. It's filled with these symbols of things that, that, are, that are types of world powers to come, but, but it comes with a little bit more detail. There's, uh, there's, in the, the latter part of our, bi- or of our um, chapter... Daniel is, is recounting this, this dream, this vision, and we're told of these beings that help to try to explain it to Daniel. And, and, and listen to what they say. I'm going to just read it. It's not going to be up on the screen, but listen to what they say uh, in, in, starting in verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the, the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision." So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. In church, this, this vision is probably, we most clearly hear through these beings that, that come to Daniel. This vision is, a, is about the end of all earthly kingdoms. It's about the end of, of sin it's the end of evil. It's the end of persecution. It, it, it's the end of this narrative in history where God stands in opposition to earthly powers. Where, where there is the God of the Bible and, and, and the heart of man. And there's this constant battle back and forth between who has authority and dominion. And we know, we know what the outcome will be. We know that God is alone is the author and, and, and the, the holder of all authority and dominion. But here in Daniel 8, Daniel's given this vision of what it will be like at the end, when the end of sin and persecution and pain comes to a conclusion. So to show Daniel what the end will be like, though, He's given this vision, right? He's given this picture of the end through the lenses of contemporary world powers. Daniel, the, Daniel's given this vision, and, and, and they interpret this vision in such a way that they say, Daniel, look to these world powers. This is what it's going to be like. They're, they're a symbol. They're a representation of what that end will be. In verse 20 of chapter 8, Daniel's interpreters tell him that, that the ram with the two horns, one longer than the other, is this united kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, Right? It's, let me just read it. As for the ram you saw, that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Under Cyrus, the, the, the two kingdoms of, of the Medes and the Persians are united into one kingdom. And, and so this ram is this, this world power that has grown through, through conquering one another. And, and so he's got this one, this one world power in front of him, the, the powers that actually follow the Babylonians who... He's currently enslaved with, right? So initially, when, when Belshazzar is defeated, the, the Babylonians are conquered by King Darius and the Medes, followed, but followed by King Cyrus, who unites the Medes and the Persians under one kingdom. 
And so how does, how does Daniel describe this ram that he sees in verse 4? Is it peacefully grazing on the mountain? No, right? This, this ram is, is running around. He's charging in every which way. He, he's fighting to the, the, the north and the south and the west. Nothing could stop him. He was just gobbling up territory, gobbling up conquering people, enslaving and exiling the people that they conquered. So, and, and if you're a student of history, you know that, that the Medes, after they defeat the Babylonians, their lust for power and authority and dominion was not satisfied. It was not complete. They actually go on to conquer what we, what, in, uh, what we know today as being the territories of Turkey and Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, Iran. This, this, is, this is a world power that is power hungry, that is, that is in, insistent on conquering the people around them. And they just grew and grew and grew. And then, verses 5 to 7, we're told of a male goat. A male goat with this odd little horn between its eyes who comes running up from the west. This goat runs up from, from the west and attacks the, the ram, smashes it to bits, crushes the Medes and the Persians. And, and, and if you look down in, in your Bible to verse 21 of our chapter, it says the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Now, again, if we look to history, you would know then that this great Greek king goes by the name of Alexander, right? We, we know him as Alexander the Great, who has this whirlwind of a, of a reign of terror where he runs from, for, he, he rules for 10 years, conquering nation after nation, and it's this Greek king who's credited in history as defeating the Medes and the Persians. But, but this king doesn't reign very long, does he? This king doesn't rule in power and authority for very long. Look at verse 8 with me. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So goat's doing great. Goat's conquering things left and right. Goat's doing a lot of damage. But then this great horn is broken off, and in its place there's, there's four smaller horns that take its place. Now, Alexander, if you know uh, his story, only lived to about around in his 30s, right? Alexander was someone who, 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 who lived till he was in his 30s and then dies off. But before he dies, at the height of his power, he hands off his kingdom, his empire, to four of his generals. It's not going to be a, a, another king that's going to rule over the entire kingdom of man. It's going to be his four generals that he disperses throughout uh, to, to kind of cover the, the fullness of his kingdom. Uh, I think their names are Cassander. I'm not going to be able to say their names. But there is one, uh, the, the Seleucus and, and Ptolemy. They kind of cover the, the areas of the kingdom that we probably know best or, or that play the most into the, the role of history with Judea and, and Egypt. But these four group Greek rulers are responsible for the spread of the Greek culture, the Hellenistic spread of Greek culture throughout the land. Basically, it's this the, the setting up on the, on the stage of world history, the opposition between the culture of God's people and the culture of man, the, the kind of culture of the day, the Hellenistic culture of the day. And so what this tells us is that if, if Daniel's way of life faced opposition under the Babylonians, do you think there's any hope 
for Daniel's way of life, finding some peace and being settled in some other worldly regime, taking over power? No. Our hope for an end to evil, pain, and suffering isn't in some new earthly king or empire gaining power. Like Daniel's story doesn't tell us that, you know, if he could just hold out until the Babylonians are defeated, the, the next, next person, the next king, the next power to, to come to, to kind of uh, have authority and dominion, things will get a lot easier for us, right? That's not the story of history. That's not the story of this vision. The story of this vision is that evil, evil empire after evil empire comes to power, and it's no better for the people of God, Right? Why? Because the story of history, the story of humanity, is that there is God and then there's every other power. And we know from Daniel 7 that, that the, the trajectory that this world is on is that God's people, at the end of history, will stand with God. And God will assert himself as the, the one who alone holds all authority and, and dominion. And so for for Daniel, things don't seem much worse than they did under Babylonians, under the Babylonians. He, he doesn't seem to experience a, a, a sense, or he won't, he can't expect to, to receive a reprieve from the persecution he experienced under Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or any of the Babylonians, right? But now the vision tells us a little horn grows out of one of the four horns. So not only do we have the Greeks who defeated the Medes and the Persians, but now we have, we have another, another king, another power, another authority that's going to rise up from among these other kings. And this little horn takes over in, in new leadership. Look at uh, how it's described in verses 9 to 12. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the, with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw the truth down to the ground, and it will act and prosper." This little horn, this, this new world power that would raise up, it would be pretty, pretty treacherous, pretty terrible, right? It would be a terror, and, and, and it would be great not in a good way, right? It would cause lots of problems for the people of God. It, 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 would, it would stand in opposition to God's rule and authority. It would stand in opposition to our creator, to our redeemer, to, our, to the one who, is, who, who provides for his people, and not just stand in opposition to God, but, but persecute the people of God, right? It, it would throw truth to the ground. It would, it, it would, some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw to the ground trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. This description, though it sounds a bit cryptic and, and symbolic, is a description of the persecution of anyone who would choose to, to submit to God's authority and to God's dominion over this world. This, this little, little horn would be nothing pleasant or enjoyable to be around. The little horn would, would desecrate the place where God's presence dwelled among his people. Right? He talks about the, the, the altar of the, of the burnt offering. He, he would desecrate that. 
He would try to ruin God's relationship with his people. We, we mentioned this gentleman last week, but it's not difficult to understand what kind of evil this ruler would bring in uh, through the life of Antiochus, who was the king of the, the, the Greeks, right? If we look at the life of Antiochus, we can actually begin to see how wicked and evil this little horn might be. Now, and again, I'm going to go into this, I'll re- recap in a little bit, but, but Antiochus, is a, he's a symbol. He's an example. He's one type of evil ruler that there will be many more like him. So if we look at his life, we get a picture of what these, what, what, how evil and how dark and how, how, how painful and, and uh, horrible this kind of earthly ruler would be like. Now Antiochus comes to power in about 175 BC, and he gives himself the name Epiphanes, right? We, we might remember hearing his name if you've heard it talked about in Bible studies and things like this, is Antiochus Epiphanes. He gives himself that last name. Why? It's a, it's a designation of, of divinity, right? He's like, hey, people, in case, you don't get, in case you don't get it, in case you don't see it from the actions I take, the decisions I make, I want you to know that I'm a divine figure, right? So he says, you know what? I'm going to give myself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes is that, that, that name that, that designates that. He was, he was arrogant, right? He was violent. He was deceitful and could care less about the people living under his power. He just wanted them to submit to him, right? There's a story that, that's told, it's graphic, and, and where he would actually execute mothers who circumcised their children according to the Mosaic law. But if that's not enough, he then goes on to kill the rest of his family and kills the infant along with her, all to assert his desire, his, his authority to say, you're not to obey any other law than the law that I give you, right? He, he's, he's the source of, of over 12 years of this enormous suffering that, that the people of God endured under his leadership. There's records of him promising peace to people if they'll just surrender peacefully and then slaughtering them as soon as they lay down their arms, right? He forbid the Jewish people from obeying Yahweh. He started by making it illegal for them to offer up burnt offerings in the temple. But, but when I say that he forbid them, if anyone tried to do any of this, it's not like, hey, they're going to go to jail for a little bit. They were, they were, they were killed. They were murdered. He commanded the, the, that the people of God not just stop obeying the law of God. He commands them to actually profane the law of God, profane the Sabbath and other Jewish festivals. He commands the people to defile the sanctuary and to defile the priests who serve in the temple. He, he commands the sacrifices of pigs and other animals that God deemed unclean, right? If, as God was setting apart to, to take his people and, and make them holy, make them unlike the, the, the nations of the land that surrounded them, one of those things was there are certain things that we can eat and, and sacrifice, and, and pigs were considered unclean, and, and, and he says, you know what? No, you're going to, you have to sacrifice pigs, right? In the Jerusalem temple, he takes the golden altar, he takes the lampstand, he takes all the temple, temple's utensils, he takes a table for the bread of the presence, he, he takes cups for drink offerings, he takes bowls, the golden censers, the curtains, the crowns. He takes, it's like the Grinch who stole Christmas, right? And, and that picture you see where there's that little crumb on the ground and the mouse coming out to get the crumb and he takes the crumb too, right? Antiochus is the, like, the epitome 
of the picture of worldly power standing in opposition to God's authority and the dominion of God. It was, it was, it was his expressed intent, his goal to make the people of God an abomination to God, right? It's not just that he was trying to say, hey guys, come follow me and entice them away. He was actively taking steps to make the people of God an abomination to God. And, and some people, some people went along with him. They didn't give him, they, they, didn't, they didn't put up much resistance. They didn't, uh, they didn't really resist him too much. But regardless of whether they went along with him or not, he was going to make the people of God an abomination to God. But, but here's the thing, an attack on God's people was only part of the wickedness of Antiochus's heart, right? Probably the most shocking and arrogant step he takes is the act of setting up this sacrilegious altar on top of the altar of burnt, of burnt offerings, right? He, he takes his own little altar, this own idol that he wants, and he sets it up on the altar uh, of the burnt offerings. It, you know, it may not be clear what he's doing here. So let me just, let me just reiterate. He's doing everything he possibly can to ruin and destroy God's people before God, to, to destroy their, the, their relationship with God. He is a, 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 a type of human power, earthly power, that does not want there to be any other God but themselves and will not stand for, the, for a people to worship and obey and bow down to any other God than themselves. We saw in Nebuchadnezzar, right, when he, he requires everyone to bow before him, and if they don't, they get thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, here comes Antiochus, just a number of years later, doing the same thing in a different way, but not just, not, not just in, in telling people that they have to obey him. He's actually forcing them to, to, to actively destroy their relationship with God. And he does it most clearly through setting up this sacrilegious altar on top of the altar of burnt offering. The, the, the sanctuary, this altar of burnt offering, was the centerpiece, was, was, was at the very core of Israel's relationship with God. You remember when, when, when they're given instructions on, on how to set up the tabernacle as they wander through the wilderness, all so that God's presence could go with them. His glory could dwell among his people in, in, in the temple, in the sanctuary. Uh, and, and, and this altar of, of burnt offering was, was the centerpiece where, where Israel could come before God, where they could make atonement for their sins, where God did not have to turn away because of the, the evil and the darkness in their hearts because they'd made atonement for their sins on the altar of burnt offering. And so now here comes Antiochus and says, you know what? I, I'm going I'm to take, take away every opportunity they have to even make atonement, to even find some sort of forgiveness between them and God so that God will, will see them and dwell with them, right? When Israel's told to construct the temple, they're given instructions around this altar of burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1. Let me read a few verses from, from that chapter. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him 
See, in Antiochus's mind, to blasphemously destroy the place where atonement is made for Israel's sin would, would destroy their chance for a relationship with God. It would destroy the opportunity for them to bow down to and worship and obey God. And what's left? Now they, they, have, they have no chance. They have no, there's no other competition for Antiochus. He's now, he, he's asserted himself as being the greatest world power, right? He was an arrogant and evil leader. But church, I want you to remember something. He's, he's a type of evil Right? He's a type of worldly ruler that represents any number of earthly leaders who covet the, the power and the authority that comes from man being worshipped. Right? They want to they be worshipped, these rulers, these leaders. And, and they're in a competition for your heart. Right? Antiochus was no worse than, than Hitler, Goring, Goebbels, or, or was it, uh, Boko Haram, or, or ISIS. All these other evil powers that want sole authority and dominion, not just on this earth, but over your hearts and your minds. Antiochus is, most, is the most likely example of this in Daniel's day, but, but rest assured, He's not the last fulfillment of this, this type, this symbol of earthly power. These, these, are, these are world leaders who are hungry for power, for authority, for dominion. And, and honestly, the God of the Bible is their chief competition, right? He's their, their chief competition for the hearts of the people. You look at how Scripture unfolds. I know I've said this numerous times. So uh, forgive me if you're sick of hearing me say this, but, but my, one of my favorite or most, for me, one of those most aha moments in the book of Judges is at the very end where it says, in, in the, those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own hearts. Right? There's a battle for your heart. A and the answer is not, you know, you get to decide what you want to do for whatever makes you happy. It, it's not whatever is most um, least destructive to the people around you. The reality is that God created you and wants a relationship with you. And that relationship is one where we learn to trust him and live in obedience to him. Trust his ways. And in this world, sin, Satan, evil powers are in competition for your heart. This Antiochus, this Greek ruler, is one example of this. Where it's not just that they want to entice us away. They actually want to control and manipulate and stand in opposition to the God of the Bible and make us live a certain way. So I think these types of world leaders make the children of God a target. We become a target of their wrath and persecution because the hearts of, children of, the hearts of the children of God belong to God. That's who we worship. That's who we trust in. It's in his hands that our future resides in. You know, one of the questions we ask ourselves when we face this kind of persecution, when we face pain, and not just, I'm sorry, not just persecution because there are certain decisions that rulers made that, that affect us, but the persecution that comes from sin in this world, right? Pain, anguish, trouble. 
One of the questions we ask when we face this is why? Why is evil allowed to exist? Why is it allowed to to carry on? But our passage today asks a better question, a question that that gives us hope, right? It's a question that that, that we ask in various forms by, that, that, that each of us have probably asked in various forms when we've faced hard times, difficult times, challenging times, when we've pain, uh, faced pain or, or loss or disappointment. Take a look at verse 13 and 14 with me. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the, the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. The question is how long? Right? The question is not, will the sanctuary be restored? The question is not, will God have a relationship with his people again? The question is not, why is this happening? The question is, how long? How long do I have to live in this darkness? How long will the loss of my child or my parent hurt the way it does? How long will I struggle with seeing sin have so much power in my life or in the lives of my loved ones? How long will evil seem to be winning the day, right? The psalmist cries out in prayer on numerous occasions. Psalm 74, how long, O God, will the adversary revile? Psalm 79, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Psalm 6.3, my soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 94.3, how long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? So the, the, the question that is asked here in Daniel, 7, or Daniel 8 It's been asked for generations upon generations before Daniel. And it's been asked for generations upon generations after Daniel. And if you find yourself asked the question, are we there yet? Like like a child in the backseat in a long car trip? You're not alone. right? We we shouldn't be satisfied. We shouldn't find a way to to just put up with the suffering that we deal with in this world. The, The persecution of those who stand in opposition to the powers of this world. It's normal. It's normal and natural for our hearts to long for an end to the evil. So you're not wrong for saying that that it should not be this way. You're not wrong for asking God, God, how long? When will you bring an end to this evil? When will you bring an end to this persecution? But I'm going to ask you to prepare yourself for a minute because the answer that we're given, I don't think is actually what we're looking for, right? I want to hear, all right, just give it, give, it another, you know, give it another year, make it the next six months, and then things will be better. You know, just give it, give it time for the seasons to change, and, and things will be better. But here in Daniel 8, we're not given that answer. Here in Daniel 8, we're given a, kind of a description of, of a time that will bring to an end this this time of persecution and desolation in the temple. Time that was to last for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, I will say this. Many scholars have set about trying to figure out how long this time is. Is it three and a half years? Is it it 2,300 days? What is it? What's going on here? Uh, And and there's some interesting uh, theories out there as, as to how 
this may be. But I, 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 I don't know that we're supposed to know exactly when this desolation will be brought to an end. And even if we can conclusively say when this persecution under Antiochus came to an end, again, I think we're, we're dealing with a vision here where the, the, the characters and the details are symbolic of giving us clarity to, the, 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 to, to what God is promising here. Namely, that there will be a definitive end to the persecution that we face in this world. There will be a definitive end to us standing up against sin and evil in this world. What I will say to us this morning is that the 2,300 evenings and mornings tell us that this period of time will come to a definite end. It will not go on forever, right? The vision that Daniel has here in chapter 8 is ultimately a picture of God's capital E end to evil and sin in this world. After the 2,300 evenings and mornings, the effects of sin will no longer even be a memory for us. Sickness, sadness, tears won't even be a word in our vocabulary. Daniel 8 doesn't give us, as readers, a date on the calendar of when this will be, and, and so I can't tell you when Jesus will return and when God will finally and completely restore his people and restore their relationship with him like he had set up in the temple. But I don't know that we're supposed to. Jesus affirms this to his disciples in Matthew 24. But of the day and hour, no one knows, not even the, the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone, right? We, we, don't, we, can't, we can't make sense of this math. We're not supposed to, right? Uh, Paul affirms it in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Right? Uh, Peter. Peter restates it again to those living in persecution who have been scattered abroad. Right? He says to them, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. It will be a definitive end. Right? We're given a number so we know when that number is up. Not necessarily so we can figure out when, when it fits our calendars and, and, and to align with certain uh, human leaders that we can see here. Church, the hope that Daniel's vision gives us is that no matter how dark the night may appear, the darkness will end and the morning will come, the light of the morning will come, and that light will last for an eternity. So my encouragement and challenge to us this morning is this. Don't get caught up in the confusion and uncertainty of calendars and trying to figure out when the end will come, right? It's, 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 it can be exciting, and there's some very interesting theories out there, but, but I'm pretty sure that's the best we can say is that they're theories. What we do know definitively from Daniel's vision is that God has promised an end to pain and suffering and persecution, that it will come to an end, and when it does, God will fully restore his relationship with his creation, right? God will fully restore the place of the, of the temple and the sanctuary, the place where God's glory dwells, that God will dwell among man, right? So Jesus doesn't want his followers distracted? I don't think. I think what he wants is for us to focus 
on what we can do, what we can focus on, what we can attend to in this time between now and when Jesus will return. Now, if you listen to him, he actually does have other things for us to focus on. If you study what Jesus teaches and proclaims in the New Testament, there are lots of other things for us to attend to in this time when, when, when God is bringing a conclusion to this, this life, this persecution. And Daniel once again gives us help in figuring out how we are then to live in light of this information we're be, being given here. Take a look at where Daniel leaves us after his vision in Daniel chapter 8. Look at verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. After seeing all this, Daniel still doesn't get it. Now, you might say, hey, yeah, but we're on this side of history. We can go back and make sense of what, what Daniel's vision was, and then we can use that information to interpret more visions for the future. But I think that misses the point of what God is saying to us here through Daniel. I think what God is saying is, hey, I've, I've given you this vision, and even if you don't understand it, there is a task, there is a job, there is a life that you are called to live. After seeing all that Daniel sees, Daniel gets up and gets back to business. He, he doesn't pretend to have the key to understanding the mystery of the vision. He, he doesn't pretend to, to have a, an equation or a grid through which he can read the coming days. He gets up and he goes about his business. He doesn't start stockpiling for the end. He doesn't, he's not overcome with the fear of this change of power and, and start living in light of that and, and stocking up supplies for, for this, cha this change of, uh, of regimes. He goes back to business for the king, for King Belshazzar. Remember, remember King Belshazzar, the guy who, who was having that, that feast while he was being attacked? Daniel goes back to serve in his government after he gets up from this vision. See, Daniel goes back to being a faithful child of God living in a foreign government, living under the rule and reign of a, of a, of a foreign king. He could have lived in fear. He could have lived in, in, in trying desperately to make sense of what he was looking at, but he doesn't. He simply goes back to being the faithful child of God he is living in exile. Church, I want us to understand in the span of history, you will always face earthly leaders who don't get it. They don't get what your heart beats for. They don't understand your God. In fact, they don't want to. What they want is they want your praise. They want your worship. They want your, 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 your servanthood, right? That's, that's the way earthly powers work. By nature, governments of man that are not led by God they, they, they're, they're driven by this desire for authority and power. It's the nature of humanity. It's not, that's not a condemnation on one particular government or one type of politic or one, one person in history. It's, it's the nature of humanity in opposition to God. What God desires is for us to trust him, to worship him, and to walk with him. And so you're going to face persecution anytime 
you say no to earthly powers so that you can say yes to God. Antiochus, Alexander, any of these kings that Belshazzar, any of these kings that Daniel dealt with, each of them are, 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 are types of worldly leaders. We look at their life and we see the nature of man. We see the nature of humanity unfolding before us. But the invitation isn't for us to be overwhelmed by their, the, the fear of the power that they have because we know what their future holds. We know they will stand in judgment before the ancient of days, before God, and God will deem them guilty and will remove their, their authority and their power. But we also know that he'll maintain his own authority through his son Jesus. That's our future. That's, that's the kingdom we live in as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we don't need to fear what the future looks like. And not just because it's, it, it could go on forever. We know that God has promised to bring it to a definitive end. And so what do we do in the meantime? We go about our business as children of God. We bring the light and the life of, the, of Jesus Christ out into the world, out into the spaces where we're living under the rulership of man in this world. And so church, I don't want you to fear the evil of this world. Don't, don't get caught up in the evil of this world. Don't, don't wonder when it's gonna come to, to end. Instead, be like Daniel. Be like Daniel. Though we may not completely understand what's happening in this vision, let's get up and let's get back to business being God's children in this world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do, uh, Lord, we confess that we are like Daniel. We, we are, we're confused by symbols and uh, ideas that, that don't seem clear to us. And yet, Lord, we, we trust you. We trust you for our future. We trust you will do what you have set about to do, that you will bring it to a definitive end. And so, Lord, we will choose to be this morning to, to not be people of fear, but to be people of faith. So we will get up. We will go back about our business to the places where you've called us to be faithful, serving as representatives of your kingdom. Empower us to do that, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.